You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Jordan Broking, and thanks for joining us. For tonight's show, News Director Himadri Saith and Correspondent Grant Johnson look at some 9-11 anniversary events in Ithaca. Correspondent Beck Legato talks to IC Prism about Ithaca College featuring on Campus Pride's list of top 50 LGBT-friendly colleges and universities. And correspondents Carolyn Grass and Jack Dunphy cover the AIDS Ride for Life 2021. But up first, Emma Kirsting and Lauren Leon have your community beat. Island Health and Fitness became the latest local business to introduce a COVID-19 vaccination requirement and the first local gym to do so as the idea of vaccination requirements begins to extend beyond local bars. While personal fitness locations were not a major hotspot of infections during earlier parts of the pandemic, the Delta variant's prevalence and contagiousness has made contracting the virus increasingly likely even when fully vaccinated. Members are also encouraged to wear their masks while they're using the facilities. For the 24th consecutive day, Tompkins County remains at a high level of community transmission. According to the County Health Department, there are 36 new positive cases, bringing the number of active cases to 280. Among county residents, there are nine active hospitalizations and a total of 34 deaths. Over 74,000 county residents have received at least one vaccination. Officials in Seneca County joined neighboring communities pushing back on New York State's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. In a letter to Governor Kathy Hochul and Health Commissioner Howard Zucker, County Manager Mitch Rowe wrote that local nursing homes and hospitals have already begun receiving mass resignations of staff effective September 26, 2021, one day before the proposed vaccine mandate is set to go into effect. Cornell University is canceling or modifying most in-person events for its homecoming weekend because of concerns about the spread of COVID-19 among the campus community. The weekend, slated to take place later this month, will no longer include its fan festival, laser show, or fireworks display. The university will still hold its homecoming football game and previously canceled Class of 2020 commencement ceremony, adhering to safety measures during both events. The Tompkins County Health Department recently released a statement urging the public to get their flu shots this year. It is more important than ever to get your flu shot during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Flu vaccines are now available at many locations throughout the community, including healthcare provider offices, pharmacies, and clinics. Everyone six months of age and over should be vaccinated every year against the flu. Prioritize getting your vaccine in September or October. Cayuga Health System and the YMCA of Ithaca and Tompkins County reached a new partnership agreement as part of the Y's ongoing efforts to expand its service offerings and aid local healthcare providers in the region. The collaboration will include health clinics, wellness screenings, and educational programs, and it will make use of the Y's Graham Road West location. For Emma Kirsting, I'm Lauren Leone. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Jordan Broking. 9-11 is a day of remembrance for everyone. And with its 20th anniversary yesterday, Ithaca saw a number of events and commemorations held for those who lost their lives. Himadri Saith and Grant Johnson bring stories from two of these events. 
Donald G. Havish Jr., 70, College of Engineering. Juan M. Ofuente, Ph.D., 77, College of Engineering. Stuart Sujin 27 Lee, names. 93, College of Engineering. Sean 27 Lynch, people, 87, 27 members of, of the Ithaca College and Cornell University communities who lost their Mackinac, lives on September 11, 2001. College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Virginia A. Ormiston, Master of Engineering, 82, College of Engineering. A crushingly enormous number for those who knew and loved them, yet only a part of the nearly 3,000 deaths that resulted from the series of terrorist attacks that occurred on the morning of September 11. Michael A. Tanner, 79, College of Human Ecology. Jennifer L. Semis, 96, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. 20 years ago, 246 people boarded a morning flight. 2,606 people went to work. 434 firefighters went to the station. 60 police hit their beat. Eight paramedics checked their supplies for the day. None of them saw past 10 a.m. Gary Stewart, vice president of the Cornell Community Relations, reflects. And when I was sitting there, I was thinking, like, what would these people be doing now? What would their lives be like? Um, how do their How do their families? Gina John Batista organized one of the 9-11 commemoration events over the weekend in Ithaca. Gina is the director of the Office of Assemblies at Cornell University and plans dozens of events every year for the Cornell community. But this event was special for her. Yeah, I, I grew up in a, um, a military family. Um, I lived overseas, so I had a very, very different lens on what it meant to be an American. And I take patriotism very, very seriously um and it's it's challenging in ithaca sometimes to to do that because politics and patriotism are often conflated but um i i happily separate the two and i very proudly uh am, am very proud to to be from the united states i do events for the university and love to do that kind of planning but this one particularly was was of great interest just because this was a, a, a major event in my own life in addition to the reading of the names of alumni who lost their lives, a memorial wreath was placed on the live slope. Other members of the community made remarks regarding the importance of commemorating such a tragic event. But one of the highlights of the event was in fact a nonverbal representation of the shock of the losses that occurred 20 years ago. This was the Cornell clock, chiming at each moment an attack occurred on the morning of September 11th at 8.46. The moment American Airlines Flight 11 struck the World Trade Center's North Tower at 9.03. The moment United Airlines Flight 175 struck the World Trade Center's South Tower at 9.37. The moment hijackers crashed American Airlines Flight 77 into the Pentagon near Washington, D.C. And finally at 10.03. The moment when passengers boarded United Airlines Flight 93, launching a counterattack causing hijackers to crash the plane into an empty field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, what came to mind was something um, my own grandfather told me a long time ago. We were talking about um, his lived experiences and, and, you know, I would never know what, you know, some of those things were. And he had said that the closest we can ever come to... Um, 
to experiencing something that you haven't actually lived through is to look into the eyes of somebody who has, and then it sort of, it becomes your, you know, your shared experience. Um, some of us had lived through the events and whatever that meant in our own lives. And then, you know, a lot of people weren't even born yet, or if they were, they were very, very small and young. While most college students today don't have a memory of the 9-11 events because of their age, veterans of the United States Armed Forces cannot forget. Like everybody else, I remember where uh, I was during 911, and the, the change before 911 and after in the perception of the military, I felt was distinct. That's Janice H. Chen a Cornell University alumni who recently completed 30 years of active service with the U.S. Army and one of the panelists on Cornell's 9th September event discussing stories of military alumni. When, before then, it wasn't bad. It was just a little bit less visible, um, a little bit less understood what the military was for. Um, there were conflicts all throughout the the first decade that I was in. We had um, Somalia involvement and we had Operation Desert Storm. But when 911 happened, I felt like it motivated a lot of support to come toward us because we were, we, the military, not like I'm in anymore, but we as the military were going after something that the we felt the American public was very supportive of. And so the support that was always there became more vocal, more visible, more tangible and palpable. Um, and I saw that within the first two years, um, from 2001 to 2003 or four was when that shift happened. And I was always proud to be in the military, but I was that much more proud that I was part of this big club across the Joint Forces that was doing something hopefully good and physically invisible um, to the world. Others in the panel also felt that 9-11 greatly affected the way the military was perceived by the people of America. Tom Swanson, also a Cornell alumni, said that people became a lot more positive towards the military in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Swanson joined the Cornell ROTC program in 1973, two years after widespread protests on campus against the Vietnam War. I showed up uh, two years after that, and actually for my freshman year, uh, I was a four-year Air Force ROTC scholarship student, and for my freshman year, we were not allowed to wear uniforms on campus. You, uh, you had to, to, to wear civvies into Barton Hall, change into your military uniforms for, for drill and that kind of thing. And, and it rapidly changed uh, uh, after that. Despite these changes in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, perceptions of military have not continued to remain entirely positive, especially with a lot of criticism in the following years regarding the elongated war in Afghanistan, loss of countless civilian lives, and other criticism regarding the large military budget and sexual assault allegations within the military. You know as a civilian, when I hear people talk about the military budget or sexual assault in the military or other things, I feel like I don't necessarily have as much context because I don't know exactly how the military functions. Like, why would it have such a humongous budget? And is that is that good? Is that bad? Should we be spending money somewhere else? Like, um, so 
Is that what you mean? Like, like people who serve should be also in those leadership posts and making those decisions and be educated at Cornell so they can get to those points? Like, is that what you mean? Like bridging that divide? That was Kelly Santana, host of the Stories of Cornell Military Alumni event on 9th September. Roland A. Molina, one of the panelists and a Cornell student who served in the Marine Corps from 2012 to 2017, offered an answer. One of the purposes of this panel is to get veterans' perspectives, right? And um, that's not a perspective that a lot of the kids here at Cornell get to experience. So that's what I mean is um, essentially I want all CUVA members, all undergraduate veteran members to make friends with, you know, non-military folks just so that they get to know that, hey, we're not, um, you know, we're not stereotypical, you know, uh, just PTSD ridden, uh, you know, what have you, whatever stereotypes there are of, of veterans that we just want to succeed and provide for our families and, um, you know, be good Americans. Jessica Palominos, who served in the military corps from 2013 to 2017, also shared her perspective. Uh, me personally, I, I don't mind that sort of discourse because I think it's that it, in that sort of deliberation between those that say the military budget should be increased and those that say it should be decreased. I think we find that comfortable medium where we say, I think this is this is what we should be spending. And I think that deliberation helps us get there. Um, at times, it just it just feels like uh, the discourse just seems like it's it's one sided or it's the other sided. But when I analyze it from both sides, it does seem to always come to a middle ground. While many of the panelists did not join the military solely as a result of the events of 9-11, for many, it was something that did become a factor. And Paul, do you find that um, 9-11 influenced your decision to uh, follow a career in the military or your decisions after the military and how? I was, I would say yes and no, both directly and indirectly. I think um, for, for anybody who joined the military after 9-11, uh, there's probably a 9-11 flavor uh, in the reasons for why they did join. Um, I think it's um, through many different ways of society, you know, kind of uh, put in front of you as this is what's going on. This is how you can help, and these are the ways that you can do it. Um, so I think it, it it definitely influenced my decision. Uh, however, um, it was one of many kind of things that, that pointed me in that direction. That was Paul Rojas, a panelist and Cornell University alumni who served in the U.S. Navy from 2012 to 2016 and in the National Guard from 2016 to 2019. Jamie T. Vasquez, who served in the Air Force from 2004 to 2014, had a similar answer, with his other big reasons actually being the stories of the soldiers who lost their lives during World War II. He related the story of a friend who was in New York City the day of the attacks. He worked at Tower uh, 2, and he was late to work, and he saw the second plane hit, and he had to run all the way to, to Brooklyn. He tells me this story. And I don't know if that was one of the reasons why I joined, uh, but also in my fraternity, we had a plaque of about 30 names of World War II veteran, Cornell students that went to World War II and never came back to, uh, to Cornell to finish a degree because they died in war. And I was sergeant at arms. I had to clean it once a month. I had to polish it once a month and see those names. 
I think out of those two experiences, uh, that sacrifice that others did, even Cornell students that I never met 50 years ago uh, when, when I was there in 2002, propelled me to say, I, I, you know, my, it's my calling now that I, I need to serve and put, do my part. The event ended in tones of laughter and fellow military members sharing stories of the force that were relatable largely only to each other, starting all the way from those who served in the 70s until those who served as recently as in 2019. Yet, there was a palpable gloom that shrouded the banter every time 9-11 was brought up. The same gloom that surrounded events across Ithaca yesterday as the numerous lost lives of that day were remembered, a full 20 years later, whether represented by the lowering of Ithaca College's Dillingham Fountains, the ceremonies conducted by various area fire departments, or the ones we attended at Cornell. Today, we pause to remember those we lost and that tragic day. And we also remember the strength of our community and our efforts to bind the spiritual wounds of our friends and our colleagues. For WICB News, I'm Himadri Said. And I'm Grant Johnson. Ithaca College has been named as one of Campus Pride's top 50 LGBTQ friendly colleges and universities. WICB News correspondent Beck Legato looked into what one of the campus's own LGBTQ support organizations, IC Prism, has to say about the Ithaca College experience for its LGBTQ individuals. I'm Beck Legato, and today I'll be talking with the president of one of our on-campus pride organizations, better known as IC Prism, to learn more about the campus's reaction to being named one of the top LGBTQ colleges for students to attend. Campus Pride is an online not-for-profit organization designed to spread information and create support programs to encourage and teach colleges and universities how to be safer and more inclusive. Last month, they came out with an article that gave light to the, quote, best of the best colleges and universities for LGBTQ students. Shane Windmeyer, one of the Campus Pride's exec executive directors, spoke on this article saying that, quote, upper-level administrators are now understanding how LGBTQ friendliness is key to the academic success of students and the future institutional success of the campus. Campus Pride scored more than 435 campuses using their Campus Pride Index, which is known for featuring LGBTQ student opportunities and highlighting positive work done in their higher education. This index is an online tool that allows students and families to search through a culminated database of LGBTQ friendly campuses across the country. One of 30 colleges on this list, Ithaca College was judged on a five-point scale for three different categories, which were inclusive policies, program, and practice. IC scored a five out of five in each field, giving it a total campus pride index of five stars. On the Campus Pride Index database, it details that Ithaca College offers a supportive environment for LGBTQ people and includes campus-wide themed educational programs as well as social events. It continues including quotes from anonymous members of the LGBTQ community in Ithaca. One particular female was quoted saying, I am who I am today because of the love and support I found from staff, faculty, and my fellow students on campus. 
Ithaca College released an article about this achievement, quoting Luca Maurer, the director of the Center for LGBTQ Education, to say, quote, At Ithaca College, we continue to address barriers to full inclusion of LGBTQ students and develop strategies to continue learning, performance, and research environments where LGBTQ students are welcomed, valued, and affirmed, not only accepted, but expected as integral, necessary, essential members of our on-campus community. To talk more about the decision of Campus Pride, I spoke with Abby Haber, a senior Ithaca College student who is the president of IC Prism, which is an on-campus pride organization that's mission statement is to make it a safe space for people of the LGBTQIA community and allies and providing social and community activities for anyone on campus. We started out talking about what IC Prism is and what they provide for LGBTQ students across campus. So we are one of Ithaca's LGBT student-run organizations. We are mostly a social group. So we have movie nights and game nights and just are generally a relaxed space for uh, Ithaca's LGBT student population to hang out and get to know each other. I, uh, I organize our events. I sort of, I, the rest of my eboard is incredibly helpful and they are a wonderful asset to my club, but I will come up with meeting ideas, like schedule things, like all of the, the boring admin parts, <laughs> and then I let the rest of my keyboard help out with the fun stuff. Abby continued to talk about the importance of the club on campus for her in particular. I mean, personally, that is where I met literally my closest friends on campus. Like, it is... It's such, like, I really wanted, like, to preserve that energy. Like, I went to the first PRISM meeting that happened my freshman year, and I have barely missed one since. Like, it, it's just a really important, like, environment for me. Mm-hmm. Like, having that, like, just that clear space where it's just, I know I can be myself around these people, and I can relax and have a nice time. This idea of a safe space became a large factor of our conversation, and when I asked about the campus treatment of LGBT students and the ranking, Haber immediately agreed with the ranking. Like, I know um, that it got ranked in the top 50. I completely agreed. I was, like, like, I resoundingly agreed. Like, Tompkins County has one of the highest populations of LGBTQ-identifying adults, and it is definitely, like, reflected in the school's population as well. Like, I think there was a survey that went around my sophomore year of that, of the class of 2021, of how many of them are LGBT identified, and it's like 30%, like, which is crazy high compared to like the national average or whatever. Um, so it, it definitely is, and it comes with the environment. So I think it's like a, self-fulfilling prophecy like there are queer people so it gets a reputation for being good for queer people so more queer people come and it's like a this incredible like uplifting cycle i mean i don't know if that's true but it's it's what it feels like because i knew it was super lgbt positive because i knew lgbt was welcoming so it's just that like you know it's okay for you to go there so more of them come. 
she continued to speak on the staff and their treatment of the LGBTQ plus students when asked about what the staff's treatment is of her in her four years here. I think it's a case-by-case basis, honestly. Like, I am in a queer studies class now. I took a queer literature class um, last last year, whenever it was, uh, spring of 2020, when we first went online. I was in queer literature. So there are some professors who are super queer positive, but there are others where it's not that they're not queer positive, it's just that it's not as forward. And they're not as well educated. Not that they're not as well educated, well, maybe a little bit. Like, none of them are malintended from what I have experienced. But some of them are a little less, like, queer knowledgeable. Like, I I have not had, like, a negative experience queer-related in my entire time. We continued to talk about the ranking of Ithaca College, and Haber spoke on how she learned about the ranking and talked about the LGBT center on campus. She also mentioned Luca Maurer, who was mentioned earlier, and is in charge of the center on campus. And it ties into, like, the 20th anniversary of the LGBT center on campus. Yes, it's actually. Yes, it's actually this year. I learned that recently. Oh, my gosh. Luca mentioned it, that the 2021-2022 school year is the 20th anniversary of the LGBT that's amazing. So I thought that was like a really cool. So it's it's a place on campus for, uh, for that has resources for LGBT students. Um, Luca Maurer is the uh, guy who runs it. He's excellent. Uh, just it's just a great. We, they moved it recently. It was in caps, but they moved it to Towers Concourse. So like in that hallway in the, that connects East and West Tower. And I checked it out recently. I don't know if it's fully open yet, but I went in there to be nosy. <laughs> um, and it, it's like major upgrades. And I definitely uh, recommend it as a resource. Abby, to finish up our conversation, talked again about her position and really what she has been able to do with her platform, especially following the year-long quarantine for students on campus. And I am empowered to have those conversations with like people in prison because there's freshmen and sophomores who I'm sure have been fully inside for a year and a half and haven't had a queer community in a long time if at all yeah so I really appreciate having that platform sort of I mean it's not really a platform literally yesterday we spent an hour and a half playing jackbox games but I'm able to like build that community for people who haven't really Ithaca for a long time has made sure to sustain an accepting community for people to feel comfortable in expressing themselves for who they are. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out at news at WICV.org and we will try to respond as soon as possible. As always, for WICV News, I'm Beck Legato. The AIDS Ride for Life, a ride around Cayuga Lake ranging from 14 to 102 miles depending on the participant's choice is an annual fundraiser that raises money for the Southern Tiered AIDS program. The event had to be canceled last year due to COVID. Now with the event's return, correspondents Carolyn Grass and Jack Dunphy look into what it's like for both riders and organizers. For WICV News, I'm Caroline Grass reporting with Jack Dunphy. 
Yesterday, September 11th, roughly 200 riders gathered at Stewart Park in Ithaca in the pre-dawn hours to ride around Cayuga Lake for the AIDS Ride for Life event. This year marks the 23rd annual event where riders bike in distances ranging from 14 to 100 miles and raise money and awareness for the Southern Tier AIDS program. The Ride for Life event has a different meaning for every rider. Some focus on the event as a day to see if they can finish the remarkable 100-mile course, but most riders know the day as a chance to raise money and awareness about HIV and AIDS. Jeff Asbrand is completing his first 100-mile ride this year. I always wanted to do this, and so I thought, well, as my first century, as they call it, uh, why not do the, you know, supported ride uh, in the Ride for Life uh, situation. Uh, so yeah, I've been uh, training all summer and last uh, ride was a 70 mile solo ride. So I feel like, you know, I've got this. There's, you know, plenty of people on the road to, to help you out. So yeah, it's really good. And uh, the donations gathering was uh, far easier than I expected it to be. You know, that's one of those impediments where I know people that ride that are like, I always wanted to do the ride for life. But you know, getting people to give me $300 to do that seems like, um, you know, too much of a hassle or, you know, difficult enough that I haven't done it yet. So, but it was quite easy. Brad Edmondson is writing for his 14th year. Well, I was a reporter in Ithaca and that was in the early 80s. And that was when uh, the AIDS epidemic was really taking off and I lost several friends. Uh, so that's one reason to do it. But, uh, but another reason is that it's just a fabulous day. And it's really fun, and uh, the spirit is great. And I couldn't, uh, if I was just going out by myself, I probably couldn't ride 100 miles. But being around these people, it, it increases your stamina by about 50%. <laughs> so it's a great day. We talked to head coach Becky Robinson of the Ithaca College women's crew team about how the team has gotten involved with the Ride for Life in the past few years. The team just really got into picking it as a community service project, and it's a good community service project for us to do because it's a one date and a lot of people are needed at one time. Having all the other people riding just makes it feel easier. You're just not out there alone. There's just people all over the place. There's people passing you. There's people you're passing. There's people you're riding with. And we're doing it with a team. I think there's 11 people connected to um, Ithaca College crew in some way that are on our team. Uh, and we're, we're, we go under South Hill Express. And it's just fun to get to the pit stops and wait for each other there and, and support each other. The AIDS Ride for Life event website states that this event is about AIDS and the fact that it has not gone away. It is about the 34 million people in the world estimated to be living with HIV and AIDS. It is about the 1,355 clients the Southern Tier AIDS program has served since 1984. John Barry, Executive Director of the Southern Tier AIDS program, talked about the impact of the pandemic on the event from last year when they had to cancel the Ride for Life and this year as we continue to see a high number of COVID cases in Tompkins County. Uh, the number of people that are writing and the amount of money that we has have raised has been, you know, less than perhaps our high water mark um, some years in the past. But I think given the realities of COVID, it's been an excellent year, actually, because uh, we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 250 people uh, registered to ride. And the last time that I checked in with our uh, development director, um, the proceeds uh, thus far, uh, have been somewhere north of $125,000, which 
uh, we are very pleased about. Again, you know, given the reality that last year we had no ride at all uh, because of COVID. And this year I think it's going to be um, a smaller ride because, you know, people are exercising due caution. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, having said that, there's still a lot of folks that are coming out and people are doing a fantastic job with, uh, with fundraising and we are very pleased and very thankful to the community. Fundraising from the event is vital to the Southern Tier AIDS program's ability to run. Here's how the fundraising money aids the state funding the program receives. Well, you know, the state the state funds us to do a lot of work, but it is not unusual, for example, uh, for the state to give us a five-year grant. And at the beginning of that five-year grant, you probably have enough money to run the program. But the truth is, by the end of that five-year cycle, you are either uh, running the program at a deficit or scraping the very bottom of the barrel. So the truth is that that's that's one scenario where you know fundraise money uh, comes in very handy and allows us to do very basic things like um, if we're renting a space to continue to pay the increased lease costs. Uh, we want to give staff uh, regular raises if we can that work in these programs. And so, you know, that stuff adds up over the course of a five-year cycle. The event hits close to home for many, including Ithaca Native and event coordinator Kayla Thomas. For me, and, and I think for a lot of folks, you know, I'm, I'm in my 30s. And so I kind of grew up post-AIDS epidemic. You know, it was, mm-hmm. still, it was still definitely going on. But, um, you know, I, I was someone who had to kind of ask, like, is HIV and AIDS still a, a problem? And it very much is, you know? And um, so the services that the Southern Tier AIDS program provides for, you know, HIV testing, um, helping people get to doctor's appointments and really just helping facilitate that care for people that is very much needed. Barry also talked about why the day is so important to him personally. I look forward to the ride every year. Um, it's one of my favorite days of the year, again, uh, because most years, you know, I myself am a writer. Um, it's just, uh, it's tremendous for me. Uh, HIV and AIDS has been a part of my life and my circle of friends since the 1980s. Um, I'm 55 years old, so, you know, I remember uh, the very early days uh, when people were uh, getting sick and, and then dying very quickly. And so it's been wonderful uh, to see AIDS become something different, to become, you know, a chronic manageable illness and to have friends that have lived for, for 30 years uh, with the disease. Uh, and also to see this organization evolve. Um, we've had a lot of success in reducing the number of people that become infected with HIV. So I think that's not you know, reported out enough that we've been incredibly successful, uh, both here in the Southern Tier and, and statewide in doing that. But also, I think with the advent of COVID, it's become very obvious that we don't have enough public health infrastructure to deal with uh, new diseases and, uh, you know, things that are coming down the pike. And so we need organizations like STAP that uh, that are public health organizations. And I think it's noteworthy that, uh, you know, certainly HIV and AIDS is a core part of our mission. But 
you know, we've been kind of quietly evolving over the last decade to deal with uh, other public health issues. You know, we do sexually transmitted disease testing. We're working with Hep C. We're, you know, we have a, a gay and lesbian youth center. We're working with people who are uh, coming out of prison um, and reentry programs. We have housing programs. So, I don't, I don't think that we do a good enough job and I'm partly responsible for that certainly. So I'll take the blame on my shoulders for letting people know that there's a lot of other public health work that we do that doesn't have to do with HIV and AIDS. And again, I think COVID has shown us we need a whole lot more of that right now. The event had riders spanning generations, high school and college age students to retirees. As John Berry explained, HIV and AIDS is just one tenant of the Southern Tier AIDS program, and this annual event marks a time to look back and reflect on struggles and hardships while also looking towards the future of awareness, support, and hope. For WICB News, this has been Caroline Grass and Jack Dunphy. That's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. If you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. If you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more events throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibber, and Program Director Lou Barron. It's Again Now is produced by News Director Hamadri Safe and this week's correspondents Grant Johnson, Hamadri Safe. Beck Legato, Carolyn Grass, and Jack Dunphy. All the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Lulaville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We'll be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Jordan Broking, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.